As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello everyone once again and welcome to The View from the Lane, the world-famous Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined the podcast today by both Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore. And after two games without a shot on goal, Charlie, uh, Spurs found some form at least uh, against Leicester on Sunday. Uh, Charlie, I suppose at this stage of the season, I, I hate saying this because uh, it, uh, it goes against every grain in my DNA, but sometimes performance doesn't really matter. This end of the season... They just needed that result. And they managed to combine a decent performance with the result. Yeah, I think eventually, like the first half hour or so was pretty slow. Um, and, and Leicester had the better of it. They had some decent chances. But once Spurs scored, it, it never really looked like it was going to go any other way than a Spurs win. Which, I mean, was always the expectation against a team who had made that many changes and had l- nothing to play for. The sense was that, you know, if they went ahead and it became competitive, then their instincts would kick in and they'd really want to win the game, but they they were never going to really go for it once behind. I mean, I was talking to Rob Tanner who covers Leicester and he was saying like, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously the team section showed this, but it was like, everything is about Thursday night. So it was a good time to play them, but yeah, they they did what they needed to. And yeah, as you say, I think it's one where you just win and sort of move on from fairly quickly. I mean, I think it was probably just as well that Leicester, they did kind of chase the game a little bit. I mean, they had like a decent spell at the start of the second half and if it hadn't been for that, Spurs wouldn't have been able to do their sort of scoring goals on the counter-attack thing, would they? Or from like high turnovers anyway. You could definitely see that Leicester were, uh, if not a scratch 11, were not their starting 11. But I, I thought they committed a great deal of energy to the game, which they didn't need to do. And when the manager started bringing on the players who will definitely start in the, in the second leg of their European semi-final, I thought, OK, he's making a real show of this here. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the individuals in the game, but I want to start with um, someone who didn't get mentioned at all because it, it was the, one of the turning points in the game and nobody noticed it, that when Leicester hit the post, that was absolutely a phenomenal save by mm. Hugo Lloris that commentators, people like me, I don't know about you in the stadium, Charlie, nobody seems to notice that was a save rather than just a shot directly at the goal. 
Yeah, every, everyone just thought it had hit the post, and it was only looking at this. We have little screens, so you could see on the replay. It was it's a it's an incredible save. I mean, it's a weird one because he. Daka doesn't catch it very well. He sort of scuffs it, but he does so in a really awkward way and it is heading for the corner. And yeah, it's a massive save because then Leicester could, would have been able to sit deep. And yes, they're not the best at doing that. I seem to remember them the crowd might have got very antsy indeed. But the crowd would have done, yeah. I mean, it was already one of those where the, there was an, an initial sort of wave of enthusiasm first 10 minutes or so and then it kind of cooled. And when there's so much at stake, it's always going to get stressful if you're trailing or drawing a game. Uh, with any length of time left. So, yeah, it was, it was a massive save, you know, and as you say, a, a really, really big moment. And, you know, he's, he's, he's had generally a very good season. I know there was that Wolves game where he gaffed a bit, but he's, he's by and large been very I consistent. Know, I, see, I think he, he, we're going to talk a little bit later on about a player who's usually underrated despite being hugely rated. Um, and I think Hugo Loris, I, I tend to big him up when he, when he does something good because I think we've been... It's one of those, isn't it, where you you don't we haven't had to worry about the goalkeeper position for ten years. That is an extraordinary mm. luxury for mm. any club. James, uh, you, you you appear to you have you you've worried about it, have you? Once or twice, yeah. When he's chucked one in a big game, like against Sunday's opponents. Exactly, yeah. He's had a, he's had a couple of, he's had a couple against Liverpool, isn't he? So, yeah. I mean, he's definitely he's definitely reversed his downward trajectory. To yeah. Use an incredibly clunky phrase. But I didn't know. I didn't know in the stadium that I, I didn't know that was a save either. I didn't realize that's. I've just I've just learned that, your that end? now. Yeah, that is my end. My ends. Yeah. So I've learned something from this podcast, if nothing else. We can pack so up thanks. now. There you are. <laughs> how long have you all been doing it? Two or three years. Now you finally <laughs> learned something. Now you know how it feels to be a listener. <laughs> all right. I just wanted to give Larice a, a little bit of love there because, uh, as I say, I think I think sometimes there's a tendency with goalkeepers to always believe that the grass um, or uh, is greener somewhere else. Somebody who is underrated, but it seems impossible to say it, but was brilliant again on the day, is Son. Mm. He was, I think he's one of those players, correct me if I, and I'm happy to be wrong about this, Son is never going to be 10 out of 10 every week. He just doesn't function like that. He has three weeks where he's six and a half, seven out of 10, and then he has six weeks. And it's worth saying that there are more of the good weeks than there are of the average ones. Where everything he does just touch just turns to gold. I thought he was splendid again at the weekend. Yeah, I mean, he he took his goals brilliantly. I d- I don't remember him doing a huge amount else. No. Not that you need to when you're scoring two goals. I mean, that's that's an incredible output, both on his weaker his weaker in inverted commas foot, which we'll come on to. I guess the fact that he's always, you know, he's never been at Spurs without Kane. So just trying to think why. There might be some degree of why he's underrated. You know, Kane's always been the poster boy, yeah. the main man. That maybe that maybe that suits uh, Son Heung-Ming's uh, personality. Yeah, I mean, he is such a team player. He is quite understated. You know, he's not one to big himself up. He's not flashy, for want of a better word. He just gets on and does an incredible job. I mean, that's the thing. People talk about him as being streaky, and I think there have been periods where the numbers bear that out. But this season, he's been incredibly consistent. I mean, I looked at it, the, the most he's gone without a goal is four games. And that was in the shot on target drought of the Nuno, end of Nuno. We so, can put that another way, can't we? He is the leading outfield goal scorer in the Premier League. He has scored more goals in, than Mohamed Salah with, if you take away the penalties. Non-penalty I w- goals, I wouldn't yeah. take away the penalties, but you know what I mean. 
Um, he's got a, he's yeah. got a lot of goals. It's good. I saw never take it. Yes, yeah, he has taken a penalty. He he, does and that... he missed one at Villa. Do you remember yeah, when he yeah, scored yeah. the rebound? And he, he did that weird run up, didn't he? There's an FA Cup game against Southampton where he did the stupid run up again. Yeah, and he, he scored, scored against Southampton. One. Everyone was like, don't do the silly run up again. Yeah. And then he did and missed against Villa, but scored the rebound. Which was when Kane was out, obviously. But if he was taking penalties, and then I dare took one right at the start of the season, I think Kane might have only scored one or two. But if Son, if Son had taken those three yeah, penalties, I mean, who knows? I mean, Charlie, you've, you've written a piece about um, Son for The Athletic uh, in the last few hours. And uh, I think it's a feature, isn't it? That he's so t- Nobody is naturally two-footed. I, I mean, that's just not physically possible, the way the human ectoskeleton works. But he has made himself into a player who you can't... You'd be hard-pressed if you watched a highlight reel to work out which was his better foot. Well, this is what I find... I've always found two-footedness really, really interesting. And he... His proportion of goals scored um, with his feet... Uh, of the goals he scored with his feet... And, and this is true of all the players on this list, so that you don't discriminate against players who score a lot of headers, makes it more even contest. He is way out in front with the highest with his weaker foot. He scored 44% of his goals with his left well, foot. The, it's extraordinary. Well, then you can't even call it his weaker foot, can you? Exactly. Ne- if Romelo Lukaku is next on the list, he's got 36%. I mean, Son, he, Son's 19 goals this season, 11 have come with his left foot. It's, it's absolutely mad. And he's one-off equaling um, the record of... And, th- and this is that will surprise a lot of people. Robin Van Persie's Premier League record of the most goals in a season with his weaker foot. Van Persie got 12 in 2011-12. So, you know, Son could break that. But what I think is interesting looking at those two is that Van Persie was incredibly one-footed and then worked extremely hard on his weaker foot whilst already an established player. Whereas Son, he's been doing this and I talk about this in the piece, you know, since he was a child, his dad worked him and Son and his brother incredibly hard on all the basics. And that included being able to play with both feet. And you can see it. And it is, I, I find, one of the reasons I find it really interesting is that it is, as you say, Danny, so, I mean, some people are more predisposed to it than others. Sure. But, but a lot of it is about how hard are you willing to work on it? And I think it's such a credit to Son that he did put in the hours then and by all accounts does still put in the hours honing the skill. Harry Kane's another one. Harry Kane's got an incredible week of foot. And actually, if, if you're looking at just pure numbers, it's still... So Son has 37 with his left for, for just most goals, but obviously these are smaller proportions. Uh, Van Persie and Kane lead the list with 39. So again, Son, you'd imagine, would overtake those two. Well, I mean, there's two things very briefly about this. Um, one, he has been a benefit, a beneficiary of this thing we changed, you know, sometime 10, 15 years ago from people playing on the natural wing, you know, inverting the wingers. Mm. So now in, in real match situations, he always has to control the ball with the first pass with his weaker, so-called weaker foot. Um, and that, I think a lot of people have benefited from that. I mean, the nub of this, watching Son this season... James is, and this is a really odd question to ask. Um, were you surprised when he signed his last cut, the most recent contract at Spurs? Because I was. Uh, when was this? Was this it? a year ago? Wasn't it last summer? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I, I, he doesn't strike me as being someone who's going to kind of angle for a move. No, I mean, but that, he, that hasn't happened up to this point. I, I, I don't think it's likely to now, really necessarily. I mean, I wouldn't be worried about that happening in the summer, say. No, no. I mean, now that now that he has obviously committed to Spurs, I was just uh, maybe I'm just becoming a bit negative in my old age. I, I just thought that um, a player of that standard, there would be any. I mean, almost any club in Europe would be benefiting. Mm. From it does seem it, strange that he's not like constantly linked with Real Madrid and Barcelona, yeah. or Bayern, whatever. 
in the way that Kane yeah. has been, or certainly with the big English clubs. But it it is interesting as well because, you know, obviously with Kane last summer wanting to leave, as you say, Danny, I mean, because we spoke about this, I think we touched on it, how Kane has got to be probably the best player never to have won a major trophy. And, it, and if you're looking for a second best, then probably Son. I know he won the Asia Games, so, you know, I, I don't really know. You'll know better than me, Danny, how how prominent a competition that is internationally. He will have, he will have, it will have been very important in Korea. Of course. Got him out of his military service. Uh, exactly. And for him. True. For him. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't get much bigger than that. Though he still had to do a watered-down version, but yeah. But at least at club level anyway, not to have won a big trophy. But I mean, yeah, it, fair play to him because he could have held the power had he just waited, you know, been on a contract without that long left. I mean, I think still last year, it still had a few years left. So even by now, it still have a couple. But yeah, he could have decided that he wants to go to a City or a Liverpool. I mean, as James says, they've not actually been linked with him. But you'd be amazed, especially if he's coming to the end of his contract, if those clubs didn't want him. I mean, why wouldn't you want him? He's a world-class talent with an incredible attitude. Yeah, I mean, all we can do, I guess, is, um, this is trite, but it's true. Uh, keep on enjoying him while he's there because we're supposed to be very, very lucky to have him. Uh, and as regards your your comment about uh, the best ever players never to win a trophy, I mean, that can change. But more more likely, I think that's going to happen more and more in English football because... Oh, really? I think it's going to happen less and less. Well, as always, we are 100% at loggerheads, Charlie, <sighs> yeah. um, which is what people have come, come to expect. I think, um, unless, well, unless with five substitutes, they, they increase the squad sizes uh, even further... It strikes me that, you know, we're in for a domination. We could be in for a period of domination where anyone who doesn't play for Liverpool or Manchester City, for instance. Um, you could argue Chelsea in the past. You could argue Newcastle in the future. They, they're just not going to get a look in at, at trophies. That's, that's what I meant. That's true. But then I think that they also are hoovering up more of those players than ever before. Yep. And so those, those players who previously would have won the FA Cup with a mid-table Premier League team will now do it as a third or fourth choice Right back for City. Exactly, because with the, with the new five substitutes, I guarantee you that the big six, so-called, will be pressing for squads of 30. I've got to say, exactly. I think it's a bit of an anomaly that those two players haven't won a trophy. If you look at, like, one players of a similar level, even ones playing at sort of what we might gratingly call non-elite clubs like Spurs, and clubs of the size of Spurs who have kind of had roughly the same sort of trajectory as Spurs, they've all won trophies. Spurs are the anomaly not winning mm, something yeah. in that purple patch. So I don't think I don't think that's necessarily like a sign of a a developing pattern. I just think that that's a bit of an outlier, really. It's always good to be the outlier. Let's move on from Son, and people can read your piece about how about his about his two footedness in the Athletic in the in the course of the next couple of days. One or two other Spurs players were. Really excellent on the day. So much so that I found myself asking, James, is Christian Romero, after six months or so at the club, if you, if you forget about his messing around start to the season, is he already at a standard where I can start to pencil him in alongside Ledley King, um, Jan Vertonghen, Toby Alderweireld as my favourite Spurs defenders, defenders of recent times? I mean, if you want to do that, that's up that's up to you, really. Look, it's not for me to say what you should do with your heart. Uh I mean, what I would say about those three because the others, the others, Jack and uh, James, uh, J- Jack and Charlie, because they kowtow to you as the because you're the editor. I've become um, Stockholm syndrome as well. Well, I, I seek your permission <laughs> to think certain things. Well, well, what I would say about those three, 
particularly Vertonghen and King, as they had quite at, at Spurs like incredible longevity. Like you know, Vertonghen was there for what nine years. Obviously, yeah. King was there. Injuries, obviously, initially for over a decade. Alderweireld maybe only for five or six. I, I think he needs to perform at the level he's performed over the last few months for longer than a few months. Sure, because we have to be realistic and say. He was pissing around with his international nonsense yes, the first couple of months of the season. It. Then he was injured for three months, four months. Yeah. So he's actually only really been playing at this level for but, but against another Leicester's, two or three, four Le- months. Leicester's one and a half team the other day. He was sensational. Yeah, he's, incre- he's incredibly good. But what, all I'm saying is I just want to see it. Uh, I want to see it for six or seven years, ideally. That'd be good. Man, can I give you a bit of personal advice, James? I don't know you well. I'm getting to know you through the podcast. Take your pleasures where you get them. <laughs> I'm, yeah? I, I take, I'm taking great pleasure from Christian Romero. <laughs> All I'm saying is I, I want him to be there. I don't want him to piss off in the summer or whatever well, else. Come to me in half a decade Yeah, or I want so, him to we'll serve talk. a club of distinction for a prolonged period. This, this demonstrates a difference in our character. I'm already penciling him into my all-time Spurs squad. Uh, because, because can I, I sh- want- Can I share my biggest fear with you? Yeah, it's less of a thing now because, as you may not be surprised to learn, I'm massively pessimistic about what's going to happen between now and the end of the season. So I don't think the Arsenal game is even going to matter now. Okay. My my big nightmare is watching him go into that challenge on Sancho on Sunday. It's him rattling through Salah, Romane, or whoever Diaz, whoever on on Saturday night, getting sent off and then being suspended for the North London derby. That's going to happen, isn't it? And you know that's yes. going to happen. Yes, yeah, no, no. That is, I mean, I, I was say, saying to our, to our hapless producer earlier on that, you know, we're just going to accept with Romero that there are going to be blizzards of yellow cards and occasionally referees are going to get the ump with him. He's only um, had the one band so far, to be fair. I mean, that I might be because say, he was injured for half Conte, the season. Conte called him out about it, didn't he, in a press yeah, conference? Yeah, and, and, and actually, since Conte called him out, he's he's been a lot more restrained. I mean, for someone who was picking up yellows right, left and centre... Uh, at Atalanta and to be fair for most of the start of his Spurs career but he hasn't been booked in his last six games which is for him I honestly think since he moved to Europe that will be a personal do you think the the referees are afraid of him (laughs) quite possibly (laughs) I do think in all seriousness though it makes a massive difference Uh, perception if you're that kind of player makes a huge difference and you 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 know like um, some will disagree with this but I'm convinced of it British players get away, often get away with a lot more than their foreign counterparts. There are some players who the tariff seems to be extremely high. Scott McTominay being one of them. And I think Christian Romero is, is becoming so good and is being viewed in the kind of firm but fair category. I think he there might be a little bit where refs sort of trust him. And you saw that with the tackle on Soyuncu. I think if that's some other players, they might think he's out of control, and he looks a little bit, but he's not. It is. It's just an amazing no, tackle, no, and, which Brendan Rodgers acknowledged. And I afterwards. saw against Leicester again. You know, there is a vast difference between, and 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 when Christian Romero does do something stupid, trust me, um, subscribers and yourselves, I will, I will say it, and I'm not. Gonna but we t- we talked about that challenge on Richarlison, didn't we? we, we yeah. You know, in the moment, I thought mm. people enjoyed, but actually, it was completely unnecessarily and could have like hurt the bloke so yeah but look that's at, the look, kind of thing he needs to cut out but if he's going to win the ball then look great. at the succession of tackles that harry kane sustains from behind now again yeah, now yeah that yeah. had got that had gone out of the game but perhaps it's just because of him and how good he is every tackle from behind now to me looks illegal can i just say on romero as well what's amazing with him is that he's a bit of a throwback because now it's it's really hard to intimidate players in quite the way that players used to because the rules are so much more stringent about what you can and can't do but you can see players are terrified of him. He's he's got this controlled aggression, and he forces so many errors of players because they're kind of anticipating contact, or they can feel him 
close to them. They know they're about to get smashed legally most of the time. And it, you can see there are, there was one um, in the lead up to the set piece from which Spurs then scored the corner and he won the ball off Tom, uh, Luke Thomas. And you could just see like the fear in the guy's eyes. And, the, and then that, the tackle he wins on um, Soyuncu, just before that, he was down her. And Daka, who I think had fouled him or had caused him to be down, didn't want to go anywhere near him for a long time. So he was like, God, if I go near... You know you know how sometimes players who are cocky and confident will go and maybe ruffle a guy's hair on the floor or do what Romero does, which is tell them to get up. And he did that on Sunday. And he famously did it in the West Ham away game in October. He wasn't going anywhere near him. He took ages. Eventually, he sort of crept over to him in the way that you would to like a dangerous animal that you're worried like is this animal still alive is he gonna sort of kick out at me and it was like, the fear in the guy's eyes it was like what Romero did to Mope um in his first game back and it makes a huge difference you know people just people don't want to people don't really want to take him on and and you're right to say it's something we haven't seen very much of in the game oh you know one wonders whether it comes up against it and Liverpool would be a really good test for this but he comes up against the very very best players who are tend to be fearless and will find a way to use his closing down of the space as aggressively as he does to turn. They only have to do it once in the game, don't they, where they flick the ball past him and get away from the physical contact and then they're off and running. But Yeah, but I, and we saw the Brighton game, which was unlucky, but he slid in and the ball kind of ricocheted yeah. for their winner. Um, I, I mean, that will be, what will be really interesting, I don't think it will happen because I think Mane's been playing more central, but... Mane on the left. I mean, Mane is an underrated shithouse as oh, well. Oh, he loves it. He, is, he loves that side of it. So if he is on the left, him against Romero will be very, very interesting. Now, James, it may be time for us to eat a certain amount of humble pie. Um, or is it just me? Because um, Dejan Kulusevski was dropped. Um, there's, I can't think of another word for it. And Lucas Moura played, I thought, hopelessly. Um, and then he came on and... Bingo, uh, it had worked. Giving him a, an hour to watch the team from the outside, it came on and was, was really, really good again. Hang on, hang on, hang on a second, sorry. How come I'm eating humble pie again? How, how come there was no reverse pieing when he played badly the last two games? And I didn't say anything. How's that happened? I, I ate my humble pie when he was good before. Why am I now being served up pie again? Am I just going to get, every time he plays well, am I going to get pie? No, no, you're not. This is outrageous. It's an opportunity for you to... It's an opportunity I mean, he was, he was very good. Uh, yeah. And the game, I think, was quite well... You know, at 1-0, as we've kind of said before, when the game is a bit more stretched and the opposition are going to have to come out and play, I think that probably suits that front three more. And we saw that at Villa in particular. Yeah, he played very well. And Lucas was terrible. And I know we're going to come on to that. I mean, I was really surprised by how badly he played, how ineffective he was. But like, if he come off the bench... How, what, what was the time? What was it, when did he come on to... Uh, 55, 55 minutes, minutes, two assists, right? It's pretty mm-hmm. good going, really. Which is his season in microcosm because he's got more assists than any other Spurs player and he only joined at the end of January. Um, and I think I think he's uh, there's some mad stat that he's, he's way up the list for assists in the whole league, having only started yeah, something in like January. Eighth. Yeah, uh, That's crazy. Spurs are turning out, I've got to say this about Antonio Conte, I'm, I'm a bit bewildered, so I'm going to get on to what I still think is cases to be proven by the inverted commas great Italian but but the numbers are stacking up, you know. Since he took over there, you've got to give him credit. Most goals scored by any team in the Premier League. Fourth in the defensive stats. The assist numbers for some of these players are starting. You know, we mentioned that Son is the you know scored more from outfield than any other player. Kulusevski's assist. So you know things are happening. I, I'm happy to admit that. 
I mean, if you look, I think if you just look at it very simplistically from the day he took over and look at the Premier League table, Spurs are third. So the other thing about Kulusevski, someone remind me who when he beat somebody out on the on the top right on the touchline when the fellow came in. That was poor Thomas. Again. Yeah, it was. Um, and again, there was a, that was the moment where I thought, okay, if you really are that skillful and strong, there's a, there was a strength element to it too. Perhaps the lack of explosive speed. Um, can be compensated for because I mean, obviously, if you do that, it, it, you know that was very good there and, and and led to an important attack. But if you do that on the edge of the penalty area, you're going to make a goal chance, aren't you? So uh, having uh, maybe I'll eat the pie, James. Hand me the pie. Thank you very much indeed. Sorry, just a common important question. I, I never thought of this before, but it's just come to me now. Humble pie. Yes. Is it sweet or savoury? No, I imagined it was sweet. I've never thought about it before. Um, this is a very good question. Has anyone ever looked up why is it called humble pie as well? Yes, oh. it, 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 the expression derives from umble pie, a pie filled That's with chopped or, or minced parts of a beast's pluck, the heart, liver, lungs, or oh, lights and lovely. kidneys. Especially of deer, but often other meats. Deer is a, a real delicacy. Umble evolved from numble after the French nombre, meaning deer's innards. Delicious. So it is. It is savoury. Oh, I've always liked a bit of innards myself. Although the, the <clears> doctor <throat> these days suggests, uh, God, it's too much detail um, that I keep away from them for various reasons. <laughs> um, all right, let me ask you a, a, another question. And James, I, I, I hadn't meant to hand you a pie that was unwelcome because I, I too have been um, pretty sniffy when Kulusevski hasn't played well. This is one for the for the Conte Systems merchants, and it, uh, people keep telling me, and the stats are in their favour. Conte System is starting to work. Uh, for instance, the weekend against Leicester, I didn't see any system. The two, the famous wing backs, never got anywhere near the penalty area in any meaningful way. Um, didn't put in crosses. Certainly didn't have chances. We had that game, of course, where Doherty and Reguilon were doing it regularly. To me. I've got to be very careful here because I'm bringing up old ghosts. It just looked like Mourinho again. Everybody works hard and you hope that Kane, Son and perhaps Kulusevski will produce something out of the ordinary. What, what is this system? And are we seeing it or are we actually imposing it to try and get order onto chaos? That system will obviously live and die. But, and I know we've had this conversation a few times before, but for me, that system will live and die by the performance of the wing-backs and not just how well they play, but where they play, as you kind of alluded to there, Danny. And, you know, we talked a lot about the issues on the right and I know we kind of mentioned the issues on the left a little bit. But, I mean, Sessegnon, for me, on Sunday, I mean, I don't know how you felt about this, Charlie, or you, Danny. I, I, I was sat there in the ground. Some of his movement off the ball was so, like, bewilderingly bad. <laughs> like, I just like, couldn't work out. There was there were just such obvious... And I know, look, when you're standing, when you're off the pitch and you're standing in the stands and, you know, you've got the distance and a cool head, which obviously I always have at a game, it's easy to say, well, he should cut inside and run in here or he should come round on the overlap out here or he should, like, dart right inside and not make himself available for a pass. But every single time, he just seemed to not be in the right... For me, not be in the right place. And look, I, I, Conte may have said to him do this very specific thing and don't do any of that. But I'd be very surprised if that is the case. I just thought he had, he looked, I, I don't know if it's a confidence thing, but he just looked like he didn't like ever kind of take any risks without the ball, which I think surely in that position, that's what you want. You want someone to like go on the outside or attack the far post when the ball's on the opposite flank or whatever. And which for all my criticism, Reguilon is absolutely determined yeah. to do. Um, he himself will take so many risks that he's often 
70 yards ahead of the ball when the opposition are attacking. But I actually think that's what he's been required to do um, but by Conte. I mean, I, in Sessignon's case, Charlie, I, it is worth noting, of course, that the fellow's played no football for two years. I mean, I don't suppose he's mm. forgotten how to play, but it, it, it just looks like a player without confidence. In fact, it got me... You're right, James. I was wondering, where is this fellow going now? It looks different on television, two-dimensional, rather than you seeing him in the ground. You've probably got a better view, spatially, of what, what he's trying to do. It got me wondering where, where, when he had his brilliant season at Fulham, where was he playing in the team? My suspicion is he <laughs> the played championship. Left, left, side, left side of midfield, wasn't he? He wasn't playing at full yeah, back. Yeah, he playing on the wing. Yeah. yeah. He's playing on the wing, but also you watch, he was like a penalty box poacher. Yeah. He scored yeah, he loads he's of goals that goals, season. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and most of them were kind of back post happens and things. So like, are you very, suggesting very, that Fulham players get lots of goals in the championship and then fail in the Premier League? Is that what you're all saying? <laughs> Hello, next Far season. Welcome, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's interesting. I mean, there, you, it's almost like Regulon needs to think a bit more and Cessna needs to think a bit less because he does appear very uncertain a lot of the time. And he, and to be fair, you know, he spoke about that after the game. As you say, he's had a lot of physical issues and that then, that creates mental challenges. But you know, I said this to James last week or possibly on the pod as well, like, it's funny because that right wing back position has for so long felt like a problem position, but now the left wing back is is sort of the same. But I do I think one of the things because I did ask Conte again on Friday, are you going to stick with the system? Because he just revealed that Regulon was out, so it felt justifiable to say, well, you're you're without arguably both your first choice wing backs. Does does that maybe prompt something? And he said no. And I think a lot of the reason is, and I do think, and, and I said this last week as well. Spurs are very solid defensively. And for a team that were really struggling to defend, really for, you know, towards the end of Pochettino, certainly under Mourinho, I think we underestimate, we forget how big an issue that was. And so to have found a system that does make them very resolute, they've conceded four in their last seven. And one of those was that late consolation on the weekend. You know, so it was, you know, they all count, but it was looking like it was going to be three out of seven. Either way, four out of seven is good. If you're conceding roughly half a goal a game, that gives you an incredible platform. And I think that's what Conte's focus is on at the moment. You know, this they, they, they need to get results. And if they keep defending like that, they've got a very good chance of winning games. And so even if they're not looking sparkling in attack, that's a sacrifice he's working to, worth he's willing to make. And I guess it's also the fact that you can not have the most coherent attack when you've got Kane, Son and Kudusevsky because yes, you might say it's a bit just relying on them on individual moments of brilliance, but that's a fairly calculated risk, isn't it? And also, it's not like they don't have carefully choreographed attacking plans. They do. They don't always work because teams like Brentford and Brighton are wise enough to stop them, but it's not just like how we've seen, in, you know, certainly for periods of last season, the season before, where it did feel like Give Kane and Son the ball and hope something well, happens. Well, I think that would be unfair. I guess, you know, try, when I was, I was trying to think about it and uh, I, I suspect that there is a system in there, but the wing backs are either out of form or not actually good enough to play that system. Not, so, not saying they're not good footballers, but not good enough to play in that system because you could argue that Liverpool, who are in supernatural form, that they too rely on their front three to do something special because the midfield are not... And though Thiago's having a wonderful season, they're not particularly creative. But then, of course, you look at Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold and you just think, of course, they're just light years different from what Conte has at his disposal. They're just in the defence of those of yeah. uh, um, Royale and Sessegnon. 
I mean, uh, you know, we talked a lot about how we defended Royale quite a lot in the last couple of months, actually, by saying he's not really played in this role too often before. He's played as a more standard right back. But also Sessegnon, the whole time he's been at Spurs, there's always been this assumption that he is kind of an attacking left back. So therefore, he could play at left wing back if ever needed. And that would all be fine. But actually, I mean, how I, he probably hasn't played there loads because Fulham didn't play that system. And Spurs didn't play that system too often before Conte turned up. So actually, I don't think like he's a hugely experienced player. I mean, I could be wrong and Charlie will know better than me, but I don't think got, he's played yeah. in that position loads. When I did a piece on him, I did look at this because he's played He's played everywhere. loads of positions. I mean, th- this is a guy, when he was in the Premier League, um, in that Premier League season with Fulham in 2018-19, he played, this isn't, exagger- this isn't an exaggeration, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven positions. I mean, that's extru- including as a left back, including as a striker. He's even played as a centre back before. And then last season at Hoffenheim, he mainly played as a left back. Did play about a quarter of his minutes as a left okay. wing back. So, but but yeah, I mean, so he's, he's not though. totally unused to it. But it's not it's not one that he's played loads of. I mean, I just just to go back, I've said this thing about Tanganga before, and I do think this has been a big problem for him. When you're a young player and you're constantly chopping and changing positions, and you play, you know, Tanganga played right back, left back, right sided centre back in a three, left sided centre back in a three, central in a three on the right, and you know, he's played in every single defensive position more or less. I think his career has been stilted slightly by like not just having one position and playing that a lot at that age. And I do wonder with Sessegnon, and fair enough, if they stick with the system and they stick with Conte and he plays there a lot, then that's fine. But if they change manager and change systems or he suddenly starts playing you know, on the right and cutting inside or whatever else, I do worry that he's not going to develop in the way that he otherwise might do. Sure. And that that process looks like it's already started to me, James. But Possibly. of course, it, it is it is it is it is pull backable, if that's even an English word. I do think, on a wider uh, sort of tip here, that there's a kind of human glitch here with us all. We think wing back, the modern version of it, where you know where you're atta- very very attacking, is easy to play because sub sub psychologically we're thinking well you're not really utterly responsible defensively, and you're not the out and out strikers in the team. So it looks like quite an easy position to play. But I think wing-back has always been a position that we think everyone should be able to play it. But in fact, it's a specialist position. Yeah, I think the reality is the, the total opposite to that. When, yeah. when Dan Petrescu virtually invented the position for Romania and Chelsea, he was the only model of it because he, it suited his particular skill set. And I, I think now Marcus Alonso for someone, is, is an example of somebody mm-hmm. who is brilliant at it. Yeah, but we think everyone should be able to do it. I don't think it's quite as easy as that. You're, you're saying after you're backing me up, I'm saying it's the exact opposite. You've got to have a very specific skill set. Totally. I mean, Conte has said it's the hardest position to play in his system. <laughs> you know, and we know how hard any position is to play in his system. What he demands. So, you know, he. I remember asking him about this, and he was sort of laughing at kind of how, in in a slightly <laughs> manic way, at how demanding a position it is, both physically. But also tactically, there's there's so much depth to it. I mean, you're, you are being asked really to cover a whole flank. And that requires a lot of character and personality. And I think that's maybe where Sessegnon needs to develop. I think he's got all the raw materials are there. I think he is a really good footballer. I just I just want to see a bit more authority from him, a bit more him kind of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to own this but flank. I think, but I think that's the thing that ties in with this like constantly changing roles and positions, isn't it? Like you don't develop the confidence and that, self, like, and that sense of self-assurance that this is my role, I've played this loads, I know what I'm doing, I know how to solve all the problems that come with this position and what to do when the ball's at any given part of the pitch or where to make my runs and whatever. When you're constantly chopping and changing, you're way less likely to have yeah. all of that to fall back on. 
I think that's true, but I think it's a bit chicken and egg because unfortunately, or not unfortunately, it's just the way of it. You know, I guess like learning an apprenticeship, as a young player, you do have to often play in a bunch of roles. And someone like Bukayo Saka, he first got regular Premier League minutes for Arsenal as a left back. And he, I think a lot of people were thinking, and then he played a bit as a wing back and he was sort of all over the place. And again, he looked like, is he going to be one of those utility players? But he managed to nail down a position where he made himself undroppable. And Sessegnon, you know, he this has been a really good opportunity for him. You know, like it's not easy to learn a new position. Of course it's not, but he had those run of games. It was something like six starts in a row before he got injured. And he kind of took it. You know, he he looked good. He established himself as first choice over Regulon. I think partly because Conte's not totally convinced by Regulon. And I guess you could say the same with Tanganga. He, he has played in lots of positions, which has meant more minutes, but maybe it's meant he hasn't been able to nail something down. But... You also it is it is also incumbent on the young player, and we've seen a lot of young players come through that they do through dint of their performances just make themselves undroppable in one position. And I I would just like to see Sassignon really grasp this opportunity because it does feel like an opportunity with with regular. But it's the now. final step that all young footballers have to make, whether they make it eighteen or twenty three. It is the very final step. You are a brilliant footballer, otherwise you wouldn't be at these clubs in the Premier League and the Championship. Um, and your job then is, can you impose yourself on a, in, a, in a game of football on other brilliant footballers? Because that's what's being required of you. And it's it's no coincidence, I think, that so many of these players do it by going down the division. People go out on loan and suddenly work out how to impose themselves on the game of football. Mason Mount, the obvious example, when he went to Derby, he was what he was. Mm-hmm. By the time he left Derby, he was an England international in waiting because he had learned uh, that he could impose himself on his fellow professionals, which is the hardest thing I think they ever have to do when they break into these teams. I mean, Sassignon had the loan at Hoffenheim, but I do think it's worth saying, I think it was quite a tough year. He played quite a bit, but then there were injuries and it was COVID. And I just think it was going on loan to a foreign country in lockdown is yeah, of course. going to be tough and, and for anyone. And we shouldn't forget that there are many footballers of his age whose development has been against the background of the, the lockdowns. And that can't, have, that can't have really have have helped many. There'll yeah. be one or two who like playing an empty stadia. Other than that, it, it can't have helped their development. So speaking of imposing yourself on the game of football when you're a brilliant footballer, we'll finish this um, this first section of, of the podcast by talking about Lucas Moura. I mean, here's a fellow who's played, you know, PSG would consider themselves an elite club. He's played for Brazil and very, very few rotten players have played for Brazil over the years. I think Sergio up front might be the example that people looking at <laughs> the E that proves the R. But he was James Dreadful um, at the weekend. I hate to use that word about professional footballer, but honest to God, you beat the first man into stumble, not even running, to stumble into the next one over and over again. And I don't, it was awful. Yeah, I was really surprised by, um, by the way of it, which he just didn't like grasp that opportunity because that was, I think, was that the one change from the lineup from the previous game? Yeah. And it was the only, you know, I don't know, we did this on the podcast last week, but it was probably the most realistic change we were going to see. First non-enforced change in ages. And and, and he was just, I mean, yeah, he just wasn't at the races at all in a way that you just don't often see with him. Like, like he is normally, if nothing else, he normally feels like he's like imposing himself on a game. Like, and he'll be like kind of physical and, you know, 
yeah. in a way that a guy of his size just really has no right to be. He'll put and, himself about, and even if things aren't going his way. And yeah, and, and like chasing down lost causes yeah. and, you know, just trying to make things happen. And and there were just a couple of moments in that game where, and there's one in the first half where he picked the ball up deep in midfield. And this isn't, you know, he isn't a central midfielder. So, you know, there's some sort of mitigation there. He picks the ball up in midfield, beats a man. The ball runs slightly away from him. And two defenders kind of come across and just kind of smother the ball. And he just like stopped dead, like just stood on the halfway line, basically. And you just think, that's not Lucas Mora. Like this guy is, it would normally just be like, like immediately harrying that guy down and like trying to win the ball back, like n- nibbling at him straight away. And for whatever reason, he just looked like something wasn't quite right. I don't know. Maybe this is the confidence thing of having been out of team for a while. And maybe there's a sense, and I think we all kind of have this, you know, Conte has his team. He's not particularly minded to change it when he doesn't need to. And if you're a player who was at the start of the season in the team and now isn't, it's going to be pretty um, demoralising, isn't it? If he feels like his opportunity at Tottenham maybe is now gone. I don't know, maybe it's that. But he just, he just wasn't, it wasn't a performance I would expect from him, even if you know he's quite an erratic player. I don't think he always has the end product, but you always feel like with him you're going to get 100% like sort of a committed aggression, for want of a better phrase. But there was just none of that from him at all. I was really surprised. Look, we're, we're, I think we'll have a chance to discuss more in his future at a later date. We've got a lot to do. Just having said he was awful, of course, he'll always have a place in my heart because of Amsterdam, and I'll, I'll never forget that. It does make you wonder as well what Stephen Bergwijn has done uh, wrong. Let's have a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll look forward, if that's the right word, to the next fixtures and one or two other things as well, including Ryan Sessegnon's wide-ranging interview he did after the, the game. You'll listen to The View from the Lane. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Yeah, welcome back to what should be the second half, but in fact going to be the third third of The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly with me today, Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore. I'm afraid this is the time of the season when we have to look at Arsenal game by game by game since they are the realistic challengers for the Champions League. Uh, they won 2-1 at West Ham. I heard Spurs fans complaining about West Ham's team. We could hardly do that because Leicester had a very similar team out against Spurs. James, I'm going to turn to you for this because I know you're always sunny and optimistic about these things. Can you see Arsenal slipping up? Uh, maybe. I mean, I think I think they'll win that game against it. So they've got Leeds on Sunday, I think it is, mm-hmm. and I, at home. And I, I'd be fairly confident they would win that. Sure. Um, if we assume, I don't know, we'll talk about this later in a week. If we assume Spurs lose at Anfield, regardless of our marginally increased optimism off the back of a win over Leicester. I'm still making that assumption, yeah. Then what we're looking at, what, like a five-point gap going into the mm. derby? If Spurs win that, and I can I can see that I can see it, you know the first the first derby at the new stadium with fans, well with a proper number of fans, atmosphere should be a bit spicy. I think Spurs should definitely be up for it. So you can see that gap closing to two points, and then it's whether Arsenal drop points in one of those last two games, isn't it? Newcastle away is a tough game. Newcastle's form in the second half of the season, as we were talking about before, I think they're in the top sort of four or five in the Premier League since, or maybe even higher than that. I think it might be second actually since the end of January. They were second before yeah. the Liverpool there you game. Go. So that won't be an easy game. And then Everton at home, I mean, uh, the worst thing that could happen there is Everton are safe by that point. Or relegated. Ever- or, or relegated. Yeah. I mean, I mean that would still be funny. Yeah. Least we could cling to that. Um, <laughs> so that could, be, that could be a tricky one. I mean, that, that, that's not an easy last couple of games. Obviously, Spurs, the other, uh, you know, the other side of that is Spurs have Burnley in the penultimate game and you could say the same things about that. I, I can definitely see they might drop points. I feel like there's a twist to come, whether it's like a kind of fully completed twist that puts the that puts Spurs in fourth is a slightly different question. Yeah. Um, but I, do, I can see Arsenal dropping points beyond that Spurs game. Yeah, the twist you're looking for is Spurs getting a positive result at Anfield. An impossible situation from which Spurs apparently have to get something. I'm not sure they do have to get something. I mean, Fuck it out. Well, I'm just going to go on. It can be two well, points behind and I like going into the last game. But well, they could draw and maybe... No, but you You'll said You'll be waiting yourself. for a meteor I mean... strike to change the league somewhere towards the end of the season. Go on. But if... if Well, no, because if they... Even if they lose and Arsenal beat Leeds, which isn't a guarantee, but that, that those are the results you'd yes, expect yes. to happen. As James says, then there's the five points. The goal difference is massive. The fact that Spurs have the goal difference is massive because if it, it means if they beat if they win the North London derby then Arsenal can't afford a draw against either Newcastle away or Everton at home. Everton for what it's worth have beat Arsenal the last three times those teams have met. Newcastle away as James says is a tricky game. So I don't think you know if results I looked at this if results go the way they did in these fixtures last season then Spurs even including the loss at Liverpool will finish above Arsenal. But Arsenal are a much better team than so, they were last season. Sure, although I would say Spurs are a much better they team are than better, they were last yes, season I'd as well. So I don't think if they lose at Anfield, all is lost. I also think there's a... I, I've said this for a long, long time. I'm just very curious to see Kane and Son against that defence. Um, yeah. That, that high line. That get, I, I think know, Spurs seen, are more likely to win that game than draw. Yeah. But, well, uh, those chances might still be small, but I, I kind of think it'll be an open game. Well, also, what I think will help Spurs is that Liverpool have to win that. They, if they are drawing late on... They've pretty much got to be chucking Allison up at corners because a draw is absolutely yeah, no exactly, good to yeah. them in the, in, I, I, in the form I, I, I've got to be honest. I mean, I, and you'll definitely disagree with this, Charlie. A, a draw is almost no good to Spurs. 
Like if winning that game kind would be of. amazing, but drawing it that one point, there's very few sort of circumstances. If I need to be yeah. Arsenal anyway, there's very few circumstances where drawing that game and it would be better than losing, particularly on a psychological level. But there's very few. Looking at the mathematics of it. There are very few ways in which that point would actually be particularly useful without something weird yeah, happening. Yeah, no, it's really true. And it's partly, I think, because the goal difference is already in Spurs' favour. Yeah. So, yeah, there's very few scenarios, unless you get into the realms of if Spurs like draw with Burnley, I think it might mean then... If Arsenal, Arsenal lost could to Newcastle. Lost or so, yeah, it, but you're then talking about quite yeah, a lot of conditions. Yeah, 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 yeah. It also, I <clears> know <throat> I'm obsessed with it, it puts the last-minute concession against Brighton into some kind of uh, yeah, light totally, as well. Totally. Absolutely. Well, and also not conceding that goal at Brentford. And Tony hit the post late on. Brentford had a lot of chances. And Spurs have not drawn games. That's their only draw in, in 2022. I think, I think it's only one team so, that's drawn less. Is that Arsenal? Well, they've drawn the same. They've also only drawn... It's weird. These two teams just never seem to draw games. If they were to win that game, like they did at City away... And bear in mind, no other team in the league has taken as many points off Liverpool and City as Spurs have how big a blow that would be because everyone deep down like you're saying is assuming Spurs are going to lose that game and so Arsenal are going to have a free hit at least to establish a bit of a buffer were Spurs to win that and to go back forth and of course the odds everything will reflect the fact that Liverpool are probably the best team in Europe but they've done it already to City twice they drew with Liverpool at home if they there is an opportunity there if say Liverpool who play a Champions League semi-final away this midweek if even this great Liverpool, who have shown no signs of flagging despite playing four competitions, if they have an off day, if it gets to 70 minutes and they do have to start chasing it, Spurs are well placed with Son to pick them off. It's perhaps the first signs of decline in Jamie Vardy. They are the team most likely uh, have the equipment mm. uh, to take on Liverpool's high line and the extraordinary um, confidence which Liverpool's back to are prepared to defend against a similar number of attackers. We shall see. We'll talk about it more on Thursday. Um, and finally, and I'm going to um, try not to get, to get too upset about this. I was very upset last week again. So this week, instead of Antonio Conte discussing his future and offering himself to other clubs, the players are now being asked about it. And Ryan Sessegnon, who did a wide-ranging interview, actually, has played mm. down the possibilities that, that Conte's uncertain future is unsettling the team. And he used the exact same phrase that the manager used. And it's obviously they've decided that this is the way to go. The fake news, I think Ryan said false news. He said false news, yeah. I mean, do you, be, I mean, do you believe him that the, the players are not bothered about this? To be fair, as, I mean, obviously, on one hand, I'm sure listeners are thinking, well, what else is he going to say? Of course, he's not going to come out and say, yeah, no, we're really distracted and it's affecting us. But from what I've been told by people close to the situation, they are saying that generally the players are fairly resilient and used to this sort of thing. It's not an uncommon situation for players. But that's how it is now. Maybe that the the narrative would be slightly different if they'd lost the game, and you know there was a need to look for excuses. But that that was the sense actually. To be fair, before the game, it wasn't just based on the results. So for the moment, I don't think it's having a massive impact. Well, we, we, I, I, I rather cruelly was going to say this group, central group of Spurs players, have seen off several managers now, and perhaps it's occasionally good for them to have the boot on the other foot uh, for the uncertainty to go in the other way. Listen, thank you both very very much. The tension is palpable, isn't it, as we head into these last few games. Um, when we come back on Thursday, um, we'll try and talk about ways in which, you know, seriously, um, Spurs can do what's not expected of them at Anfield. Uh, remember, if you're not already a subscriber to Athletic, you can sign up right now to read all of our articles about Spurs, including uh, Charlie's latest musings about Son, as well as everything else on the site, which is a massive mound of stuff. 
Simply go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for just £1 a month for six months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Back on Thursday. Thank you all for listening. The Athletic.